Hello and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics. Today we are going to be finishing up the Augsburg Confession, reading the last few articles which are important, especially as they touch our differences between Lutherans and Roman Catholics, but it's not quite as pertinent to, say, modern circumstances, at least insofar as it touches on intra-Lutheran relations. I digress. Let's go ahead and read Article 24 on the Mass, and we will be reading from the German-English translation in the Triglata. Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. Actually, the Mass is retained among us and is celebrated with the greatest reverence. Almost all the customary ceremonies are also retained, except that German hymns are interspersed here and there among the parts sung in Latin. These are added for the instruction of the people, for ceremonies are needed especially in order that the unlearned may be taught. Paul prescribed that in church a language should be used which is understood by the people. The people are accustomed to receive the sacrament together insofar as they are fit to do so. This likewise increases the reverence and devotion of public worship, for none are admitted unless they are first heard and examined. The people are also admonished concerning the value and use of the sacrament and the great consolation it offers to anxious consciences, that they may learn to believe in God and ask for and expect whatever is good from God. Such worship pleases God, and such use of the sacrament nourishes devotion to God. Accordingly, it does not appear that the Mass is observed with more devotion among our adversaries than among us. However, it is evident that for a long time there has been open and very grievous complaint by all good men that Masses were being shamefully profaned and applied to purposes of gain. It is also well known how widely this abuse extends in all the churches, by what manner of men masses are celebrated only for revenues or stipends, and how many celebrate masses contrary to the canons. But Paul severely threatened those who deal unworthily with the Eucharist when he said, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Accordingly, when our priests were admonished concerning this sin, private masses were discontinued among us inasmuch as hardly any private masses were held except for the sake of gain. The bishops were not ignorant of these abuses. If they had corrected them in time, there would now have been less dissension. By their own negligence, they let many corruptions creep into the church. Now, when it is too late, they are beginning to complain about the troubles of the church, although the disturbance was brought about by nothing else than those abuses which had become so manifest that they could no longer be borne. Great dissensions have arisen concerning the Mass, concerning the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for such long-continued profanations of the Mass as have been tolerated in the Church for many centuries, by the very men who were able to correct them and were under obligation to do so. For in the Decalogue it is written, The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Since the beginning of the world, nothing of divine institution seems ever to have been so abused for the sake of gain as the Mass. 
To all this was added an opinion which infinitely increased private masses, namely that Christ had by his passion made satisfaction for original sin and had instituted the mass in which an oblation should be made for daily sins, mortal and venial. From this has come the common opinion that the mass is a work by which its performance takes away the sins of the living and the dead. Thus was introduced a debate on whether one mass said for many people is worth as much as a special masses said for individuals, and this produced that infinite proliferation of masses to which reference has been made. Concerning these opinions, our teachers have warned that they depart from the Holy Scriptures and diminish the glory of Christ's passion, for the passion of Christ was an oblation and satisfaction not only for original guilt, but also for other sins. So it is written in the epistle to the Hebrews, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The scriptures also teach that we are justified before God through faith in Christ. Now, if the mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead by a performance of the outward act, ex opere operato, Justification comes from the work of the Mass and not from faith. But the scriptures do not allow this. Christ commands us to do this in remembrance of him. Therefore, the Mass was instituted that faith on the part of those who use the sacrament should remember what benefits are received through Christ and should cheer and comfort anxious consciences. For to remember Christ is to remember his benefits and realize that they are truly offered to us. And it is not enough to remember the history, for the Jews and the ungodly can also remember this. Consequently, the Mass is to be used to this end, that the sacrament is administered to those who have need of consolation. So Ambrose said, Because I always sin, I ought always take the medicine. Inasmuch as the Mass is such a giving of the sacrament, one common Mass is observed among us on every holy day. And on other days, if any desire the sacrament, it is also administered to those who ask for it. Nor is this custom new in the church, for before the time of Gregory, the ancients do not mention private masses, but speak often of the common mass. Chrysostom says that the priest stands daily at the altar, inviting some to communion and keeping others away. And it appears from the ancient canons that some one person or other celebrated Mass and the rest of the presbyters and deacons received the body of the Lord from him. For the words of the Nicene Canon read, In order, after the presbyters let the deacons receive Holy Communion from the bishop or from a presbyter. Paul also commands concerning communion that one wait for another in order that there may be a common participation. Since, therefore, the Mass among us is supported by the example of the Church as seen from the Scriptures and the Fathers, we are confident that it cannot be disapproved, especially since the customary public ceremonies are for the most part retained. Only the number of Masses is different, and on account of the great and manifest abuses, it would certainly be of advantage to reduce the number. In former times, even in churches most frequented, Mass was not held every day. As the tripartite history testifies in Book 9, again in Alexandria, the scriptures are read and the doctors expound them on Wednesday and Friday, and all things are done except for the solemn remembrance of the sacrifice. So, we here at the Catacomb Synod concur with the Reformers that the Mass, the Eucharistic service, 
is for our benefit with Christ's body and blood and all of the forgiveness that he brings to us being received by faith. However, the frequency of masses, the frequency of receiving communion is up to the individual home congregation, whether that is weekly or monthly or bi-weekly or daily, whatever need the home church has and whatever the deacon deems appropriate, that's what they're allowed to do. They have the freedom to choose this without any external pressure from some denominational authority. Moving on to Article 25 on Confession. Confession has not been abolished by the preachers on our side. The custom has been retained among us of not administering the sacrament to those who have not previously been examined and absolved. At the same time, the people are carefully instructed concerning the consolation of the word of absolution so that they may esteem absolution as a great and precious thing. It is not the voice or word of the man who speaks it, but it is the word of God who forgives sin, for it is spoken in God's stead and by God's command. We teach with great diligence about this command and power of keys and how comforting and necessary it is for terrified consciences. We also teach that God requires us to believe this absolution as much as if we heard God's voice from heaven, that we should joyfully comfort ourselves with absolution and that we should know that through such faith we obtain forgiveness of sins. In former times, the preachers who taught much about confession never mentioned a word concerning these necessary matters, but only tormented consciences with long enumerations of sins, with satisfactions, with indulgences, with pilgrimages, and the like. Many of our opponents themselves acknowledge that we have written about and treated of true Christian repentance in a more fitting fashion than had been done for a long time. Concerning confession, we teach that no one should be compelled to recount sins in detail, for this is impossible. As the psalmist says, who can discern his errors? Jeremiah also says the heart is desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Our wretched human nature is so deeply submerged in sins that it is unable to perceive or know them all, and if we were to be absolved only from those which we can enumerate, we would be helped but little. On this account, there is no need to compel people to give a detailed account of their sins. That this was also the view of the fathers can be seen in De Penitentia, where these words of Chrysostom are quoted. I do not say that you should expose yourself in public or should accuse yourself before others, but obey the prophet who says, show your way to the Lord. Therefore, confess to the Lord God, the true judge, in your prayer, telling him of your sins, not with your tongue, but in your conscience. Here, it can be clearly seen that Chrysostom does not require a detailed enumeration of sins. The marginal note in De Penitentia also teaches that such confession is not commanded by the scriptures, but was instituted by the church. Yet the preachers on our side diligently teach that confession is to be retained for the sake of absolution, which is its chief and most important part, for the consolation of terrified consciences and also for other reasons. So again, we do in our liturgy, the free divine service, permit people a moment to confess those sins which are on their heart. 
We retain corporate confession and absolution. We retain private confession and absolution between the deacon and laity or the lay leader and other members of his house church. But when it comes to corporate confession and absolution, there may be a terrified conscience who wishes to speak in order to just get it off of his chest. And on the other side, there may be somebody who does not want to expose himself publicly, as Chrysostom puts it. Both are entirely valid so long as everybody involved in confession and absolution understands that absolution is 100% valid. Your sins are truly forgiven. And we also do confess with the early Lutheran reformers that you should be absolved before you take the sacrament. But has anybody ever asked why? Why do we need to be forgiven before we receive something that has forgiveness in it? We do believe, teach, and confess, along with the small catechism and all holy scripture that teaches on the topic, that when you receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are receiving forgiveness. But confession and absolution, especially at the beginning of a church service, is law and gospel in miniature. Those who confess their sins preach the law unto themselves, requesting mercy from our Lord. Those who hear absolution hear the gospel that our Lord Christ is crucified for them. So, if somebody is going to receive the sacrament, and they must receive the sacrament in faith, it is not only best practice, but I would even wager entirely necessary, most of the time, for people to have faith that is strengthened and gladly receives the sacrament. Now we continue on in Article 26, which may be the least applicable, the distinction of foods. In former times, men taught, preached, and wrote that distinctions among foods and similar traditions which had been instituted by men served to earn grace and make satisfaction for sin. For this reason, new fasts, new ceremonies, new orders, and the like were invented daily and were ardently and urgently promoted as if these were a necessary service of God by means of which grace would be earned if they were observed and a great sin committed if they were omitted. Many harmful errors in the church have resulted from this. In the first place, the grace of Christ and the teaching concerning faith are thereby obscured. And yet the gospel earnestly urges them upon us and strongly insists that we regard the merit of Christ as something great and precious and know that faith in Christ is to be esteemed far above all works. On this account, St. Paul contended mightily against the law of Moses and against human tradition so that we should learn that we do not become good in God's sight by our works, but that it is only through faith in Christ that we obtain grace for Christ's sake. This teaching has been almost completely extinguished by those who have taught that grace is to be earned by prescribed fasts, distinctions among foods, vestments, etc. In the second place, such traditions have also obscured the commands of God, for these traditions were exalted far above God's commands. This also was regarded as Christian life. Whoever observed festivals in this way, prayed in this way, fasted in this way, and dressed in this way was said to live a spiritual and Christian life. On the other hand, other necessary good works were considered secular and unspiritual, the works which everybody is obliged to do according to his calling. 
For example, that a husband should labor to support his wife and children and bring them up in the fear of God, that a wife should bear children and care for them, that a prince and magistrates should govern land and people, etc. Such works, commanded by God, were to be regarded as secular and imperfect, while traditions were to be given the glamorous title of alone being holy and perfect works. Accordingly, there was no end or limit to the making of such traditions. In the third place, such traditions have turned out to be a grievous burden to consciences, for it was not possible to keep all the traditions, and yet the people were of the opinion that they were a necessary service of God. Gerson writes that many fell into despair on this account, and some even committed suicide because they had not heard anything of the consolation of the grace of Christ. We can see in the writings of the Sumists and Canonists how consciences have been confused. For they undertook to collate the traditions and sought mitigations to relieve consciences, but they were so occupied with such efforts that they neglected all wholesome Christian teachings about more important things, such as faith, consolation in severe trials, and the like. Many devout and learned people before our time have also complained that such traditions caused so much strife in the church that godly people were thereby hindered from coming to a right knowledge of Christ. Gerson and others have complained bitterly about this. In fact, Augustine was also displeased that consciences were burdened with so many traditions, and he taught in this connection that they were not to be considered necessary observances. Our teachers have not taught concerning these matters out of malice or contempt of spiritual authority, but dire need has compelled them to give instruction about the aforementioned errors which have arisen from a wrong estimation of tradition. The gospel demands that the teaching about faith should and must be emphasized in the church, but this teaching cannot be understood if it is supposed that grace is earned through self-chosen works. It is therefore taught that grace cannot be earned, God cannot be reconciled, and sin cannot be atoned for by observing the said human traditions. Accordingly, they should not be made into a necessary service of God. Reasons for this shall be cited from the scriptures. In Matthew 15, 1-20, Christ defends the apostles for not observing the customary traditions, and he adds, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Since he calls them vain service, they must not be necessary. Thereupon Christ says, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. Paul also says in Romans 14:17, The kingdom of God does not mean food and drink. And in Colossians 2:16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, etc. In Acts 15, verse 10, 11, Peter says, Why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here, Peter forbids the burdening of consciences with additional outward ceremonies, whether of Moses or of another. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 3, such prohibitions as forbid food or marriage are called the doctrine of the devil, for it is diametrically opposed to the gospel to institute or practice such works for the purpose of earning forgiveness of sin or with the notion that nobody is a Christian unless he performs such services. Although our teachers are, like Jovinian, 
accused of forbidding mortification and discipline, their writings reveal something quite different. They have always taught concerning the Holy Cross that Christians are obliged to suffer, and this is true and real rather than invented mortification. They also teach that everybody is under obligation to conduct himself with reference to such bodily exercise as fasting and other discipline, so that he does not give occasion to sin, but not as if he earned grace by such works. Such bodily exercise should not be limited to certain specified days, but should be practiced continually. Christ speaks of this in Luke 21:34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. And again, this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but fasting and prayer. Paul said that he pummeled his body and subdued it, and by this he indicated that it is not the purpose of mortification to merit grace, but to keep the body in such a condition that one can perform the duties required by one's calling. Thus, fasting in itself is not rejected, but what is rejected is making a necessary service of fasts on prescribed days and with specified foods, for this confuses consciences. We, on our part, also retain many ceremonies and traditions, such as the liturgy of the Mass and various canticles, festivals, and the like, which serve to preserve order in the Church. At the same time, however, the people are instructed that such outward forms of service do not make us righteous before God, and that they are to be observed without burdening consciences, which is to say that it is not a sin to omit them if this is done without causing scandal. The ancient fathers maintained such liberty with respect to outward ceremonies, for in the East they kept Easter at a time different from that in Rome. When some regarded this difference as divisive of the church, they were admonished by others that it was not necessary to maintain uniformity in such customs. Irenaeus said disagreement in fasting does not destroy unity in faith. And there is a statement that such disagreement in human ordinances is not in conflict with the unity of Christendom. Moreover, the tripartite history, Book 9, gathers many examples of dissimilar church usages and adds the profitable Christian observation, it was not the intention of the apostles to institute holy days, but to teach faith and love. So accordingly, we here at the Catacomb Synod, while we are not Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, we don't have these problems of juggling imaginary works and imaginary sins, we will say that we aggressively pursue the normative principle of worship, not the regulative principle of worship. Christians are free to do that which they see as good, which does not violate God's commands, for the sake of unity, devotion, good order in the church. It is okay if a house church decides not to do liturgy or if they celebrate Christmas in October or something. I might tease them if they have Christmas in October, but they are free to do that if that is good for good order in the church and for their devotions. However it is, they come to that conclusion, so long as our fealty to God and to his word is maintained. Now that said, as we are the catacomb synod, giving people the opportunity to go back to the catacombs before we're forced back there, being able to have churches with real freedom 
it is good to read Article 27 on monastic vows because the monastic movement started in the early 2nd and 3rd century AD from disaffected Christians basically taking the Benedict option. We don't want to repeat their mistakes. So let's read the Augsburg Confessions, Article 27, speaking about how this was mutated away from what it should have been all along. In discussing monastic vows, it is necessary to begin by considering what opinions have hitherto been held concerning them, what kind of life was lived in the monasteries, and how many of the daily observances in them were contrary, not only to the word of God, but also to papal canons. In the days of St. Augustine, monastic life was voluntary. Later, when true discipline and doctrine had become corrupted, monastic vows were invented, and the attempt was made to restore discipline by means of these vows, as if in a well-conceived prison. In addition to monastic vows, many other requirements were imposed, and such fetters and burdens were laid on many before they had attained an appropriate age. Many persons also entered monastic life ignorantly, for although they were not too young, they had not sufficiently appreciated or understood their strength. All of those who were thus ensnared and entangled were pressed and compelled to remain, in spite of the fact that even the papal canons might have set many of them free. The practice was stricter in women's convents than in those of men, though it would have been seemly to show more consideration to women as the weaker sex. Such severity and rigor displeased many devout people in the past, for they must have seen that both boys and girls were thrust into monasteries to provide for their maintenance. They must also have seen what evils came from this arrangement, what scandals and burdened consciences resulted. Many people complained that in such a momentous matter the canons were not strictly adhered to. Besides, monastic vows gained such a reputation, as it is well known, that many monks, with even a little understanding, were displeased. It was claimed that monastic vows were equal to baptism, and that by monastic life one could earn forgiveness of sin and justification before God. What is more, they added that monastic life not only earned righteousness and godliness, but also that by means of this life both the precepts and the counsels included in the gospel were kept, and so monastic vows were praised more highly than baptism. They also claimed that more merit could be obtained by monastic life than by all other states of life instituted by God, whether the office of pastor and preacher, of ruler, prince, lord, or the like, all of whom serve in their appointed calling according to God's word and command without invented spirituality. None of these things can be denied, for they are found in their own books. Furthermore, those who were thus ensnared and unveiled into a monastery learned little about Christ. Formerly, the monasteries had conducted schools of holy scripture and other branches of learning which are profitable to the Christian church, so that pastors and bishops were taken from monasteries. But now the picture has changed. In former times, people gathered and adopted monastic life for the purpose of learning the scriptures, but now it is claimed that monastic life is of such a nature that thereby God's grace and righteousness before God are earned. In fact, it is called the state of perfection, and is regarded as far superior to the other estates instituted by God. All this is mentioned without misrepresentation, in order that one may better grasp and understand what our teachers teach and preach. 
For one thing, it is taught among us with regard to those who desire to marry that all those who are not suited for celibacy have the power, right, and authority to marry. For vows cannot nullify God's order and command. God's command in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 reads, Because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It is not alone God's command that urges, drives, and compels us to do this, but God's creation and order also direct all to marriage who are not endowed with the gift of virginity by a special act of God. This appears from God's own words in Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What objection may be raised to this? No matter how much one extols the vow and the obligation, no matter how highly one exalts them, it is still impossible to abrogate God's command. Learned men say that a vow made contrary to papal canons is not binding. How much less must their obligation, lawfulness, and power when they are contrary to God's command? If there were no reasons which allowed annulment of the obligation of a vow, the popes could not have dispensed and released men from such obligation, for no man has the right to cancel an obligation which is derived from divine law. Consequently, the popes were well aware that some amelioration ought to be exercised in connection with this obligation, and have often given dispensations, as in the case of King Aragon and many others. If dispensations were granted for the maintenance of temporal interests, how much more should dispensations be granted for necessities of men's souls? Why, then, do our opponents insist so strongly that vows must be kept without first ascertaining whether a vow is of the proper sort? For a vow must involve what is possible and voluntary and must be uncoerced. Yet it is commonly known to what an extent perpetual chastity lies within human power and ability, and there are few, whether men or women, who have taken monastic vows of themselves willingly and after due consideration. Before they came to a right understanding, they were persuaded to take monastic vows, and sometimes they have been compelled and forced to do so. Accordingly, it is not right to argue so rashly and insistently about the obligation of vows inasmuch as it generally conceded that it belongs to the very nature and character of a vow that it should be voluntary and should be assumed only after due consideration and counsel. Several canons and papal regulations annul vows that are made under the age of 15 years. They hold that before this age one does not possess sufficient understanding to determine or arrange the order of one's whole future life. Another canon concedes still more years to human frailty, for it prohibits the taking of monastic vows before the 18th year. On the basis of this provision, most monastics have excuse and reason for leaving their monasteries, inasmuch as a majority of them entered the cloister in their childhood, before attaining such age. Finally, although the breaking of monastic vows might be censured, it would not follow that the marriage of those who broke them should be dissolved. For St. Augustine says in his Nuptiarum, question 27, chapter 1, that such a marriage should not be dissolved, and St. Augustine is no inconsiderable authority in the Christian church, even though some have subsequently deferred from him. Although God's command concerning marriage frees and releases many from monastic vows, our teachers offer still more reasons why monastic vows are null and void. 
For all service of God that is chosen and instituted by men to obtain righteousness and God's grace without the command and authority of God is opposed to God in the Holy Gospel and contrary to God's command. So Christ himself says in Matthew 15 verse 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. St. Paul also teaches everywhere that one is not to seek for righteousness in the precepts and services invented by men, but that righteousness and godliness in God's sight come from faith and trust when we believe that God receives us into his favor for the sake of Christ his only Son. It is quite evident that the monks have taught and preached that their invented spiritual life makes satisfaction for sin and obtains God's grace and righteousness. What is this but to diminish the glory and honor of the grace of Christ and deny the righteousness of faith? It follows from this that the customary vows were an improper and false service of God. Therefore they are not binding, for an ungodly vow made contrary to God's command is null and void. Even the canons teach that an oath should not be an obligation to sin. St. Paul says in Galatians 5, 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In the same way, those who would be justified by vows are severed from Christ and have fallen away from God's grace. For they rob Christ, who alone justifies, of his honor and bestows this honor on their vows and monastic life. One cannot deny that the monks have taught and preached that they were justified and earned forgiveness of sins by their vows and their monastic life and observances. In fact, they have invented a still more indecent and absurd claim, namely that they could apply their good works to others. If one were inclined to count up all these claims for the purpose of casting them into their teeth, how many items could be assembled which the monks themselves are now ashamed of and wish had never occurred? Besides all this, they persuaded the people that the invented spiritual estate of the orders was Christian perfection. Certainly this is exaltation of works as a means of attaining justification. Now it is no small offense in the Christian church that the people should be presented with such a service of God, invented by men without the command of God, and should be taught that such a service would make men good and righteous before God. For righteousness of faith, which should be emphasized above all else in the Christian church, is obscured when men's eyes are dazzled with this curious angelic spirituality and sham of poverty, humility, and chastity. Besides, the commands of God and true and proper service of God are obscured when people are told that monks alone are in a state of perfection. For this is Christian perfection, that we fear God honestly with our whole hearts, and yet have sincere confidence, faith, and trust that for Christ's sake we have a gracious, merciful God, that we may and should ask and pray God for those things of which we have need and confidently expect help from him in every affliction connected with our particular calling and station in life, and that meanwhile we do good works for others and diligently attend to our calling. True perfection and right service of God consist of these things, and not of mendicancy or wearing a black or gray cowl, etc. However, the common people, hearing this state of celibacy praised above all measure, draw many harmful conclusions from such false exaltation of monastic life, for it follows that their consciences are troubled because they are married. 
When the common man hears that only mendicants are perfect, he is uncertain whether he can keep his possessions and engage in business without sin. When the people hear that it is only a counsel not to take revenge, it is natural that some should conclude that it is not sinful to take revenge outside the exercise of their office. Still others think that it is not right at all for Christians, even in the government, to avenge wrong. Many instances are also recorded of men who forsook wife and child and also their civil office to take shelter in a monastery. This, they said, is fleeing from the world and seeking a life more pleasing to God than the other. They were unable to understand that one is to serve God by observing the commands God has given and not by keeping the commands invented by men. That is a good and perfect state of life which has God's command to support it. On the other hand, that is a dangerous state of life which does not have God's command behind it. About such matters, it was necessary to give the people proper instruction. In former times, Gerson censured the error of the monks concerning perfection and indicated that it was an innovation of his time to speak of monastic life as a state of perfection. Thus, there are many godless opinions and errors associated with monastic vows, that they justify and render men righteous before God, that they constitute Christian perfection, that they are the means of fulfilling both evangelical counsels and precepts, and that they furnish the work of supererogation, which we are not obligated to render to God. Inasmuch as all these things are false, useless, and invented, monastic vows are null and void. As far as the Catacomb Synod is aware, we don't have any offices that claim to be perfect or righteous or awesome or just or God's anointed over anybody, right? Well, we kind of do. Unfortunately, much of the Lutheran Church has elevated the office of pastor to the point of sacerdotalism, and that needs to be corrected by teaching pastors and deacons and lay leaders that we are to serve our congregations, not the other way around. We are accountable to God first, and then we are accountable to the people we serve via word and sacrament. They are not accountable to us. We are here as servants, not to go around saying, <laughs> I went to seminary, I went to Concordia, where I learned the biblical languages, and I know more about the confessions. Oh my, am I such a great servant of God. I love having retevocatus to excuse all my behavior. No, we don't do that. Let us not treat pastors the way monks were treated in medieval Europe. The time for fawning over and hyper-venerating the pastor is over especially so for the leaders among the pastors, so we read Article 28 of the Augsburg Confession. Many and various things have been written in former times about the power of bishops, and some have improperly confused the power of bishops with the temporal sword. Out of this careless confusion, many serious wars, tumults, and uprisings have resulted because bishops, under the pretext of the power given them by Christ, have not only introduced new forms of worship and burdened consciences with reserved cases and violent use of the ban, but have also presumed to set up and depose kings and emperors according to their pleasure. Such outrage has long since been condemned by learned and devout people in Christendom. On this account, our teachers have been compelled, for the sake of comforting consciences, 
to point out the difference between spiritual and temporal power, sword, and authority, and they have taught that because of God's command, both authorities and powers are to be honored and esteemed with all reverence as the two highest gifts of God on earth. Our teachers assert that according to the gospel, the power of keys, or the power of bishops, is a power and command of God to preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, and to administer and distribute the sacraments. For Christ sent out the apostles with this command, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This power of keys, or of bishops, is used and exercised only by teaching and preaching the word of God, and by administering the sacraments, to many persons or to individuals depending on one's calling. In this way are imparted not bodily, but eternal things and gifts, namely eternal righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. These gifts cannot be obtained except through the office of preaching and of administering the holy sacraments, For St. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Inasmuch as the power of the church or of bishops bestows eternal gifts and is used and exercised only through the office of preaching, it does not interfere at all with government or temporal authority. Temporal authority is concerned with matters altogether different from the gospel. Temporal power does not protect the soul, But with the sword and physical penalties, it protects body and goods from the power of others. Therefore, the two authorities, the spiritual and the temporal, are not to be mingled or confused. For the spiritual power has its commission to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. Hence, it should not invade the function of the other, should not set up and depose kings, should not annul temporal laws, or undermine obedience to the government should not make or prescribe to the temporal power laws concerning worldly matters. Christ himself said, My kingship is not of this world. And again, who made me a judge or divider over you? Paul also wrote in Philippians 3.20, Our commonwealth is in heaven. And in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, The weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. Thus our teachers distinguish the two authorities and the functions of the two powers, directing that both be held in honor as the highest gifts of God on earth. In cases where bishops possess temporal authority and the sword, they possess it not as bishops by divine right, but by human imperial right, bestowed by Roman emperors and kings for the temporal administration of their lands. Such authority has nothing at all to do with the office of the gospel. According to divine right, therefore, it is the office of the bishop to preach the gospel, forgive sins, judge doctrine, and condemn doctrine that is contrary to the gospel, and exclude from the Christian community the ungodly whose wicked conduct is manifest. All this is to be done not by human power, but by God's word alone. On this account, parish ministers and churches are bound to be obedient to the bishops according to the saying of Christ in Luke 10.16, He who hears you, hears me. On the other hand, if they teach, introduce, or institute anything contrary to the gospel, we have God's command not to be obedient in such cases. For Christ says in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets. St. Paul also writes in Galatians 1.8, 
Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached to you, let him be accursed. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 8, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Again, Paul refers to the authority which the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Canon law requires the same in part 2, question 7, in the chapters Sacerdotes and Oves. St. Augustine also writes in his reply to the letters of Petillion that one should not obey even regularly elected bishops if they err or if they teach or command something contrary to the divine holy scriptures. Whatever other power and jurisdiction bishops may have in various matters, for example in matrimonial cases and in tithes, they have this by virtue of human right. However, when bishops are negligent in the performance of such duties, the princes are obliged, whether they like to or not, to administer justice to their subjects for the sake of peace and to prevent discord and great disorder in their lands. Besides, there is dispute as to whether bishops have the power to introduce ceremonies in the church or establish regulations concerning foods, holy days, and the different orders of the clergy. Those who attribute such power to bishops cite Christ's saying in John 16, 12, and 13, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. They also cite the example in Acts 15, 20, and 29, where the eating of blood and what is strangled was forbidden. Besides, they appeal to the fact that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, contrary as they say to the Ten Commandments. No case is appealed to and urged so insistently as the change of the Sabbath, for thereby they wish to maintain that the power of the church is indeed great, because the church has dispensed from and altered part of the Ten Commandments. Concerning this question, our teachers assert that bishops do not have power to institute or establish anything contrary to the gospel, as has been indicated above, and as is taught by canon law throughout the whole of the Ninth Distinction. It is patently contrary to God's command and word to make laws out of opinions, or to require that they be observed in order to make satisfaction for sins and obtain grace. For the glory of Christ's merit is blasphemed when we presume to earn grace by such ordinances. It is also apparent that because of this notion, human ordinances have multiplied beyond calculation, while the teaching concerning faith and righteousness of faith has almost been suppressed. Almost every day new holy days and new fasts have been prescribed, new ceremonies and new venerations of saints have been instituted, in order that by such works grace and everything good might be earned from God. Again, those who institute human ordinances also act contrary to God's command when they attach sin to foods, days, and similar things, and burden Christendom with the bondage of the law, as if in order to earn God's grace, there had to be a service of God among Christians like the Levitical service, and as if God had commanded the apostles and bishops to institute it, as some have written. It is quite believable that some bishops were misled by the example of the law of Moses. The result was that countless regulations came into being. For example, that it is a mortal sin to do manual work on holy days, even when it does not give offense to others. 
that it is a mortal sin to omit the seven hours, that some foods defile the conscience, that fasting is a work by which God is reconciled, that in a reserved case, sin is not forgiven unless forgiveness is secured from the person for whom the case is reserved, in spite of the fact that canon law says nothing of the reservation of guilt, but speaks only about the reservation of ecclesiastical penalties. Where did the bishops get the right and power to impose such requirements on Christendom to ensnare men's consciences? In Acts 15 verse 10, St. Peter forbids putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples. And St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 8, that authority was given for building up and not for tearing down. Why then do they multiply sins with such requirements? Yet there are clear passages of divine scripture which forbid the establishment of such regulations for the purpose of earning God's grace, or as if they were necessary for salvation. Thus St. Paul says in Colossians 2.16, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Again in Colossians 2, 20-23, If with Christ you died to the regulations of the world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things which all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and doctrines? These have an appearance of wisdom. In Titus 1 verse 14, St. Paul also forbids giving heed to Jewish myths or to commands of men who reject the truth. Christ himself says concerning those who urge human ordinances on people, let them alone, they are blind guides, Matthew 15, 14. He rejects such service of God and says, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up, Matthew 15, 13. If, then, bishops have the power to burden the churches with countless requirements and thus ensnare consciences, why does the divine scripture so frequently forbid the making and keeping of human regulations? Why does it call them doctrines of the devil? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit warned against them for nothing? Inasmuch as such regulations as have been instituted as necessary to propitiate God and merit grace are contrary to the gospel, it is not at all proper for the bishops to require such services of God. It is necessary to preserve the teaching of Christian liberty in Christendom, namely, that bondage to the law is not necessary for justification, as St. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For the chief article of the gospel must be maintained, namely that we obtain the grace of God through faith in Christ without our merits. We do not merit it by services of God instituted by men. What are we to say, then, about Sunday and other similar church ordinances and ceremonies? To this our teachers reply that bishops or pastors may make regulations so that everything in the churches is done in good order, but not as a means of obtaining God's grace or making satisfaction for sins, nor in order to bind men's consciences by considering these things necessary services of God and counting it a sin to omit their observance even when this is done without offense. 
So St. Paul directed in 1 Corinthians 11.5 that women should cover their heads in the assembly. He also directed in the assembly preachers should not all speak at once, but one after another in order. It is proper for the Christian assembly to keep such ordinances for the sake of love and peace, to be obedient to the bishops and parish ministers in such matters, and to observe the regulations in such a way that one does not give offense to another, and so that there may be no disorder or unbecoming conduct in the church. However, consciences should not be burdened by contending that such things are necessary for salvation, or that it is a sin to omit them, even when no offense is given to others, just as no one would say that a woman commits a sin if, without offense to others, she goes out with uncovered head. Of like character is the observance of Sunday, Easter, Pentecost, and similar holy days and usages. Those who consider the appointment of Sunday in place of the Sabbath as a necessary institution are very much mistaken. For the Holy Scriptures have abrogated the Sabbath and teach that after the revelation of the Gospel, all ceremonies of the Old Law may be omitted. Nevertheless, because it was necessary to appoint a certain day, so that the people might know when they ought to assemble, the Christian Church appointed Sunday for this purpose, and it was more inclined and pleased to do this in order that the people might have an example of Christian liberty, and might know that the keeping neither of the Sabbath nor of any other day, is necessary. There are many faulty discussions of the transformation of the law, of the ceremonies of the New Testament, and of the change of the Sabbath, all of which have arisen from the false and erroneous opinion that in Christendom one must have services of God like the Levitical or Jewish services, and that Christ commanded the apostles and bishops to devise new ceremonies which would be necessary for salvation. Of course, here, the Lutheran Church for 500 years has rejected the regulative principle of worship, as you can see, but I digress. Such errors were introduced into Christendom when the righteousness of faith was no longer taught and preached with clarity and purity. Some argue that although Sunday must not be kept as of divine obligation, it must nevertheless be kept as almost of divine obligation, almost and they prescribe the kind and amount of work that may be done on the day of rest. What are such discussions but snares of conscience? For although they undertake to lighten and mitigate human regulations, yet there can be no moderation or mitigation as long as the opinion remains and prevails that their observance is necessary. And this opinion will remain as long as there is no understanding of the righteousness of faith and Christian liberty. The apostles directed that one should abstain from blood and from what is strangled. Who observes this prohibition now? Those who do not observe it commit no sin, for the apostles did not wish to burden consciences with such bondage, but forbade such eating for a time to avoid offense. One must pay attention to the chief article of Christian doctrine, and this is not abrogated by the decree. Scarcely any of the ancient canons are observed according to the letter, and many of the regulations fall into disuse from day to day, even among those who observe such ordinances most jealously. It is impossible to give counsel or help to consciences unless this mitigation is practice, that one recognizes that such rules are not to be deemed necessary, and that disregard of them does not injure consciences. 
The bishops might easily retain the obedience of men if they did not insist on the observance of regulations which cannot be kept without sin. Now, however, they administer the sacrament in one kind and prohibit administration in both kinds. Again, they forbid clergymen to marry and admit no one to the ministry unless he first swears an oath that he will not preach this doctrine, although there is no doubt that it is in accord with the Holy Gospel. Our churches do not ask that the bishops should restore peace and unity at the expense of their honor and dignity, though it is incumbent on the bishops to do this, too, in case of need. But they ask only that the bishops relax certain unreasonable burdens which did not exist in the church in former times, and which were introduced contrary to the custom of the universal Christian church. Perhaps there was some reason for introducing them, but they are not adapted to our times. Nor can it be denied that some regulations were adopted from want of understanding. Accordingly, the bishops ought to be so gracious as to temper these regulations inasmuch as such changes do not destroy the unity of Christian churches. For many regulations devised by men have with the passing of time fallen into disuse and are not obligatory as papal law itself testifies. If, however, this is impossible and they cannot be persuaded to mitigate or abrogate human regulations which are not to be observed without sin, we are bound to follow the apostolic rule which commands us to obey God rather than men. St. Peter forbids the bishops to exercise lordship as if they had power to coerce the churches according to their will. 1 Peter 5 verse 2. It is not our intention to find ways of reducing the bishops' power, but we desire and pray that they may not coerce our consciences to sin. If they are unwilling to do this and ignore our petition, let them consider how they will answer for it in God's sight, inasmuch as by their obstinacy they offer occasion for division and schism, which they should in truth help to prevent. So, the power of bishops, or district presidents, or circuit pastors, visiting pastors, etc., and so forth, whatever you want to call them, is limited to spiritual matters. They are primarily caretakers, or pastors, over other pastors. However, the Catacomb Synod adopts the Free Lutheran model, wherein a bishop or a director of the Catacomb Synod recognizes the true Christian liberty, the freedom which Christ has won for the believers and for the churches, and thus is there to support them. He is accountable to the deacons and lay leaders and all the home congregations and does not get involved in their day-to-day -day operations. Recognizing their freedom, myself, the Catacomb Synod Director, I will not be trying to exert control. This is to prevent the offenses which have cropped up in Lutheranism again recently as various uh, synodical presidents and leaders and vice presidents and district pastors have taken it upon themselves to decide who is or isn't out, to decide which books get published or not, to decide what's going to be read in seminaries and so forth. And while, yes, godly counsel might come from these men if they were doing their jobs correctly, these things should not be decided by them. Considering oneself lord over a denomination rather than a servant to all is a very unfortunate thing indeed. Now next week, 
Now that we've finished up the 28 articles of the Augsburg Confession, we are going to look at prayer and how our deacons are instructed to pray. It's going to be a very, hopefully, edifying session. Uh, we're going to train it the night before I record on the topic, and we'll be talking about how we care for one another through prayer. After that, we intend to get into the Pia Desideria and clearing up uh, pietism, or what I might call frontier Lutheranism, for all to understand. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.